Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 8th. 2022. I'm just back from Hungary. I spent most of the week there. Just wrote a piece uh, on LitHub, what comes after neoliberalism. And is it worse? Something about the political realities of situation in Hungary. It came out of an interview I did uh, last week with the Cambridge University historian Gary Gerstel on what neoliberalism is and its rise and fall. He has a really interesting new book out, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. Um, And my conversation today, I think, will connect up with that. Uh, My guest today on the show is Elizabeth Pop Berman, Um, who has a really interesting new book out, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. It's not formally about neoliberalism, but I wonder whether there is a connection. Uh, Elizabeth is joining us from um, Ann Arbor in Michigan today. Elizabeth, welcome. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Gerstel and his history of neoliberalism, but it, it seems in some ways to fit in to your worldview. Neoliberals turn everything into the market. They fetishize the market. They think above all else like economists because, of course, neoliberalism was created by economists. Is this what you mean when you're talking about thinking like an economist? Yeah, there's definitely a way in which the the motivation for writing this book in some sense was, you know, wanting to understand what you might call neoliberalism, where it came from, how it actually worked on the ground. But I really wanted to do it from a different angle. Um, you know, so much work on neoliberalism has really focused on, uh, you know, on conservatives, on free markets, on uh, the Chicago School. And I was really interested in in getting at a different side of this. I thought that there was a really important piece of this story that was about um, about people who were more technocratic, who were in favor of markets, but were really interested in trying to use them to make government better, make government more efficient. And that that was a big piece of the story that really hadn't been told or explored. And so, yeah, so I think it fits very much within a broad conversation about neoliberalism, even though I don't use that, that term much in the book. And uh, that actually was one of the reasons why I see quite a lot of similarities between your book and the Gerstle book, because Gerstle makes the argument that you had as much neoliberalism on the left or amongst liberals as you did on the right, and that Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton were as neoliberal as Ronald Reagan. Um, And even... uh, 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 people who sort of focused on the idea of rights and hostility to government. When one thinks like an economist, is that all economists? Is it a discipline? Is it a a discourse? Or is it a particular kind of uh, economics that you think about in this book? 
Yeah, well, I absolutely, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't read the new Gersel book, so I can't speak. Who it yeah, and I don't want to make this a conversation. No, 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 about yeah, Gersel. right. But no, but I absolutely think that that's that that's correct. That you know, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton were were just as much uh, neoliberals in their own way as uh, as you know Ronald Reagan. Um, but uh, you know, but you know what I'm what I'm really trying to get at in the book, and what I think is a little bit distinctive is that the people who um, is that there's a very specific way of thinking that is tied to the discipline of economics, but is a little bit broader than that, sort of a broad econ 101 kind of thinking that's, you know, what you would learn as an undergraduate taking economics classes. That's what you would learn if you're doing a, a master's degree in public policy. And that that really ends up um, moving into Washington in very specific ways and really being built into a lot of our political institutions in ways that that then end up um, you know, kind of kind of making everybody making this sort of the default way of thinking in Washington, and and that really has already taken place in a lot of ways by the late seventies, by the time of the Carter administration. So, uh, so yeah. So I'm also starting the story a little bit a little bit earlier than that, even. In terms of the, the subtitle of your book is how efficiency replaced equality in U.S. public policy. Is there room? In economics for equality, I mean, I guess in, in, in Marxian economics there is, but isn't it, at what point did the economics profession, particularly in America, get turned into a science, essentially became a, a form, a sister subject to mathematics? Well, so I don't think that economics uh, necessarily has to prioritize efficiency over equality. I think that is um, you know, not something that everybody in the discipline would do, certainly. And uh, the two may sometimes be intention, but they're not, they're not always intention. And also, you know, what the mainstream is within the discipline uh, evolves over time. So, so it's not like there's, a, there's one fixed thing there. But it's definitely been the case that that historically, um, as as economists and sort of people allied with economics have moved into government and worked in government, what um, you know the, the efficiency has been one of the central values that they bring to the table. And I think one reason for that is that there is um, often not much attention paid to efficiency in government in some ways, right? Uh, and so, and so you know, there's lots of interest groups trying to fight it out, and so. There's a great phrase that um, Charles Schultz, who was uh, chair of, of President Carter's uh, Council of Economic Advisors, used. He called economists partisan efficiency advocates, that their job really was to advocate the, for policies that were efficient. And equality just kind of was, was set a little bit to the side of that. Uh, Elizabeth, let's think back a little bit before Reagan and Carter to the New Deal. Were there economists working in the American government in the New Deal who prioritized equality over efficiency? Yeah, there were absolutely um, economists uh, working in the government. Then there were uh, lots of economists in the FDR administration. Uh, for the most part at that point, they were a very different type of economist. Uh, they were what was called institutional economists. And they were operating within a very different framework. So they were not particularly theoretical. They were not interested in, in doing formal modeling. 
Uh, they were very interested in uh, the details of particular industries. They were interested in law and in history. Um, and while they like to collect quantitative statistics, they did not do the same kinds of, of, of formal modeling that later, you know, that we might associate with neoclassical economics. And they brought a different set of values uh, to the table with them. So, um, you know, so, so equality might be one of those. Um, they were also very concerned with stability, which again, might be something that is in conflict with efficiency at times. And so some of the policies that you see uh, coming out of the New Deal, some of the things that are about regulating particular industries that later on, you know, in the 1970s would be rejected uh, because they made these industries less efficient. Um, you know, were really done on purpose because the priority at that time was not efficiency; it was it was stability in the midst of the of the Great Depression. I think it would be fair to say, Elizabeth, although correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not a big fan of thinking like an economist, even or certainly when it comes to efficiency, uh, and that you write this book in a in a critical way. You think this is a bad thing that uh, efficiency replacing equality in U.S. public policy has been a bad thing. Do you have models of economists um, who you admire more? Are there models that we should try to replicate or reinvent? I really try to walk this line uh, in the book between, on the one hand, um, being critical of the way that economics has actually been used in practice often, which has you know has really been constraining to people who are interested in progressive policies and who um you know and, and that, it, that it has limited the range of policy options that are that are on the table in some ways um at the same time i think that there's a lot of value in economics as a discipline and uh you know would certainly not want to see it um uh removed from from policy and so um you know so 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 I mean, so on the one hand, I guess what I would be looking for is um, to to open policymakers to more types of ways of thinking, so that so that so that we sort of understand that efficiency is one value, but that sometimes um, you know other competing values might be, make sense to prioritize instead. Um, and yeah, and there's absolutely uh, economists out there who are focused on uh, different sets of issues. Um, you know, there's uh, groups that are focused on. Um, uh, you know, doing studies of, uh, you know, labor market monopsony, for example, who are very interested in workers and um, whether, you know, whether market concentration is leading to workers being paid less than they would be otherwise. Um, you know, there are many economists now working on questions of uh, in economic inequality. You know, there's a growing number of people working on racial inequality as well. And so, so there's lots of room for the, the discipline to expand. It's not necessarily fixed in, in one place forever. You have this great phrase in the book. Um, you call it the the economic style. What does that mean? The economic style, which is the economic style, I guess, of thinking. Yeah. So when I talk about this this economic style of reasoning, I'm really talking about something that, first of all, comes comes from microeconomics, right? So not talking about macro and um, you know, models of, of the entire economy, but uh, this sort of basic way of thinking that you would learn in Econ 101 that kind of focuses on um, incentives, it focuses on <laughs> choice, it focuses on uh, competition, 
on thinking about trade-offs, on weighing costs and benefits. And so it's really this very basic toolkit that, um, that you can pick up pretty quickly as a, as a general orientation to policy. Um, and that, that is, on the one hand, it's, it's certainly grounded in the discipline of economics, but people pick this up from lots of other places as well. You know, you see it a lot in policy schools. You know, there's parts of law schools that are very, very tied to this kind of orientation. Um, and so that's what I'm really talking about with an economic style of thinking. So what you're suggesting then is that there is a blurring, if not a coming together of thinking within the government and within corporations. I think that is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true to some extent. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think that government is never going to be um profit driven in the same way. And I guess, I guess, well, well, the piece that the piece that's really similar to me is um, an orientation towards policy that's focused on cost effectiveness, right, which would be something like you might see in a in a corporate environment where, um, you know, where you're trying to figure out how to produce whatever it is that you're producing as as cost effectively as possible. Um, you know, I think where it ends up looking a little bit different in government is that a lot of it is about um, you know, well, when you think about, you know, when, when you have a policy problem that you want to solve, you know, what are, what are the kinds of things that you go to in order to think about how to solve it? And so, you know, if the problem, for example, is that you're concerned about climate change and you want to see uh, climate change uh, tackled through some kind of policy means, you know, well, how do you go about doing that? And so if you're starting from a broadly economic perspective, you know, the, the way that you would think about that is you think of, of what pollution is an externality. And so we need to find a way to price it. And so, you know, so we're going to think about either doing something like a carbon tax or something like a cap and trade program. And, um, you know, and those are, are concepts that certainly uh, make a lot of, of sense theoretically. Um, but I think it's also the case that uh, what has happened in is that it tends to rule out other kinds of, of approaches. And so uh, for example, more direct kinds of government in intervention, uh, invest, you know, more direct investment into uh, green technologies, more direct forms of regulation, um, because uh, because they're seen as being um, not being being inferior kinds of policies because they are not sort of um, incentive based and uh, oriented towards efficiency in the same type of way. What you're talking about, Elizabeth, seems to me anyway, I'm not putting words into your mouth, is a form of madness where everything can be quantified and everything can be determined according to economics and price when it comes to government policy. Um, you trace this in some ways in your book back to the, the Rand Corporation of all places, which sort of pioneered this technocratic way of making sense of the world. What's so interesting about RAND and who were the, the pioneers within, within RAND that began to argue that, that the world itself was, was a puzzle that could be fixed by technocrats? Yeah, I mean, I really love the, the, the story of these guys. It was, um, you know, the guy who ran the, the economics department there, and this we're talking about the 1950s, basically. Uh, was a guy named named Charles Hitch, and he led a whole team of people who were basically, um, you know, they were they were sponsored by the Air Force almost entirely at that point, and so you know, so they were really trying to solve problems for the Air Force that were 
all Cold War problems. So they were saying they were trying to solve questions, you know, answer questions like, how do we, um, you know, how do we protect ourselves in case of nuclear war? You know, how yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, a strange Lavian to invent a word, a strange Lavian quality to Rand in this way of thinking. It's it's a form of insanity, which if you say it enough times, begins to make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and there was all and. Uh, you know, and, and what the economists were able to do, you know, in this particular time and place um, was really solve some of these problems by saying, well, how should we make these decisions? You know, the way that we should make them is by, um, you know, identifying our objectives and then trying to find the most cost effective way to, to meet those goals. And they and they ran into moral conflicts right from the beginning. You know, for example, uh they, there was a lot of debate over, are we going to put a value on the lives of, of pilots, right? So if you're making some kind of big plan about how are we going to, you know, defend the U.S. against a nuclear attack, um, well, you have to be prepared that you're going to lose a certain number of human lives. And well, it's, it's the you, kind of thinking that ultimately can justify nuclear war. Yeah, I mean... From the viewpoint of the people who were there, they were doing it to prevent nuclear war, right? Yeah, that's what they they say. But I mean, these were also the people, McNamara and and the rest of them, who who dragged us into Vietnam. Us, the Americans, that is. Yeah, no. And it was the same set of people who ended up coming to the Defense Department in 1960. Like you said, Robert McNamara brought them there um, and really set up these, um, these budgeting methods that were seen for a few years as being very successful, but that were also very directly responsible for, for what happened in Vietnam a few years later. Is there a, a moral vacuum, a spiritual crisis to these people? I mean, why aren't they, they want to, and again, and again, excuse me if I'm being a little vulgar here, they want to turn us all into computers and we're not. Yeah, and they got that criticism even at the time, right? There was a lot of criticism that, you know, you, if you if you're just going to count things, you're going to miss all the things that matter. That it's that it's it's wrong to try to put a dollar value on human lives. That this isn't you know this is just a, a morally inappropriate approach. Um, you know, I think you know one again. I, I do think from their perspective that they saw themselves as trying to make this make things better. I will say that what ended up happening was a lot of them kind of intentionally got out of the defense business after Vietnam started kind of going south. Um, and a lot of them ended up sort of moving into other parts of government and other kinds of kinds of policymaking, you know, working on things like great society programs, specifically because they wanted to get out of this um, this business of, of you know, quantification. Wasn't, uh, wasn't Dr. Rumsfeld one of these people as well? Um, he had he, he had some yeah he did have some connections to them and and he worked pretty closely um, uh, you know in, uh, under the Nixon administration then in the Office of Economic Opportunity um, where a lot of these folks ended up so there was this very rapid crossover from defense into you know the war on poverty and, and as society. you suggest it's it's technocratic it's really neither of the left or the right or it be, it's become something that perhaps some progressives are comfortable with, but technocracy by definition eliminates the human being. We are talking with Elizabeth Pop Berman, the author of Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. 
public policy. Really interesting and important new book that I think fits into a lot of the themes we've been talking about. Elizabeth, we're going to take a, a short break now, and then I want to talk after the break about two things, antitrust, how this all fits in, and most importantly, what are we going to do? How are we going to stop thinking like economists? Because it's clearly uh, not beneficial to anyone, not even uh, economists. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Elizabeth Pop Berman, the author of Thinking Like an Economist. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Elizabeth Pop Berman, the author of Thinking Like an Economist, really interesting new book out about the activity of thinking think like an economist and why that has been detrimental, particularly to public policy in America in the neoliberal age over the last 50 years. Um, Elizabeth, you had a, an interesting uh, op-ed um, in the Washington Post this week or last week um, about reimagining antitrust law, which will boost consumers, workers, and innovation. Why is antitrust law an important piece of the argument you make in thinking like an economist? Yeah, the reason that antitrust law is so important is this is probably the area where, where more than any other economic thinking has really just kind of um, taken over the policy domain. And, uh, you know, the history of, of antitrust law is that is that, you know, it emerged from these sort of broad populist concerns about the power of corporations. You know, you can see these uh, there are these great, you know, classic um, uh, political cartoons that show uh, the people from the, the big the big trusts who are sort of standing over Congress and, uh, you know, running the show. Um, and so the original motivation behind antitrust, you know, it was complicated, but it dealt with these sort of complex questions around uh, around what corporate power should look like. And 
between the 1960s and the 1980s, over this course of about 20 years, uh, the the purpose of antitrust was narrowed uh, more and more to focus uh, purely on on uh, the concept of of consumer welfare, allocative efficiency, and really a, a really singular focus on prices as being the measure of whether any kind of antitrust intervention was needed. And so you have um, basically uh, through case law, uh, it's written into law effectively that antitrust law can, can only be enforced if the nature of the, the harm is that, uh, is that companies are, are raising prices, exercising market power by raising prices. for. So what you're saying is lawyers, and I assume this was particularly Robert Bork, their problem was that they weren't thinking like lawyers, they were thinking like economists. Oh, and, and Robert Bork was um, very much, you know, I mean, of course, he, he was a lawyer, but, um, you know, he was part of, uh, uh, there was a, a workshop at the Chicago School in the 1950s on antitrust that was, you know, that was, that was, uh, primarily economists, but also had some lawyers in it, and he was in that as a as a young man. So, um, so yeah, so there were um, lawyers who were were implementing some of this, but they tended to be either lawyers who were trained in economics or sort of um, more from the the law and economics uh, part of the of the field. Elizabeth, we've done a number of shows on um, antitrust. Uh, we did one with Peter Osnos about antitrust crisis in publishing, but mostly we've done tech ones. We did something with Barry Lynn. I'm sure you know his mm -hmm. work about a neoliberalism created new age of monopolies in Silicon Valley out of his book, Liberty from All Masters. He's been very influential. Number of other people. Are, are you suggesting that, um, that the new antitrust ad uh, initiatives within the Biden administration, that finally public policy is, 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 liberating itself from thinking like an economist? Yeah, I think it's absolutely uh, an effort to break out of this framework. And and Biden's appointees have been people who take a very different uh, approach and have a very different different starting point for thinking about antitrust. And I think, you know, what's going to be interesting and what, what part of the challenge is, uh, is that it's not just the appointees who have to want to take a different orientation, but you know, one, they have to kind of uh, convince everybody who works for the antitrust agencies to go along with their agenda. And, you know, an economic reasoning is very firmly embedded within the agencies themselves. Um, and then they have to be able to sell it to the courts as well, where uh, historically, again, uh, this idea of consumer welfare as the, as the measure of antitrust policy has really been, um, you know, uh, the one that's been accepted as the legal standard. And so, so the people at the top are definitely thinking differently. Um, you know, they do have uh, an uphill battle in order to uh, actually turn that into uh, some kind of enforcement. I mean, the, the issue of whether it's Google and their surveil the surveillance capitalism, they're pioneering or Amazon and its decimation of retail. The issue is it's good, as you suggested, it's good for consumers, perhaps in the sense that with Google, the there is no price or Amazon, the price is lower, but it's a disaster in for us as citizens. We did a, a show recently with a British writer, John Alexander, who has argued that the biggest problem is we've misthought ourselves, misunderstood ourselves as consumers rather than citizens. He has a new book out, Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us. Are you suggesting, like Alexander, that we need to 
we at public policy, policymakers in America, need to think of ourselves as citizens rather than consumers, and that economists are not equipped conceptually, or economics as a discipline is not equipped to think of us as citizens. Yeah, it's, not, and I it's think- just a discipline that doesn't work. So maybe we need to employ political philosophers or sociologists or, uh, well, or government yeah. experts. Yeah, and I think um, you know what what the what the issue really is is that economics, um, you know, economics has a certain set of tools and a certain lens for thinking about the world. Um, and there's other factors in the world that are that are important that are just kind of beyond that framework. And so, you know, something like broad forms of of corporate power. You know, how can uh, Amazon? Um, you know, what kind of political influence do the big temp- tech companies have? Uh, you know, are they creating harms uh, because of change? You know, or are they creating harms because of changes in the way that that speech works and and communication works uh, in the U.S. You know, these kind of broader political questions that are really driven by a different set of values um, can't really be answered with economics. And so as long as uh, something like antitrust policy um, is really only focusing on uh, economics specifically, then those those other questions get, just get ignored. And, and, you know, and the argument that's given for that is uh, often that that you know, antichrist is like a technocratic domain and that this is, that this is, um, you know, this is, this is just economic. So it's, it's somehow neutral. And, you know, what we don't want is political antitrust. So we don't want, um, you know, people just punishing the companies that they don't like and, and, and that that would be, um, you know, worst outcome, but, you know, but it's, it's, it's all political. Um, and, you know, I think it's better to just sort of, uh, account for the fact, you know, to, to think seriously about, about what our values are and what kind of, um, you know, what kind of behavior we want to see corporations uh, follow and then, uh, you know, and then let our, uh, let, 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 let things play out through the political process um, rather than uh, pretending that we can somehow create a neutral framework for making these decisions. Right. And then the whole idea, is, as you suggest, of econ- economics as neutral is itself uh, obviously absurd. It's no, it's no more neutral than anything else, especially in the way it's been applied from a policy point of view, and the way in which it's colonized other disciplines, even political science, certainly law. What about healthcare, Elizabeth? It seems as if, when you think about America and all its problems, if there's one area that captures all the problems, the tragedy of privatization of neoliberalism it's it's healthcare we've done many shows on this we've had tom hartman on the shameful history of american healthcare i know you may be an admirer of obama but you think obama fell into the trap of thinking like an economist in terms of his healthcare reform yeah and i think i think healthcare is is one of the areas that um really uh highlights this shift really well right because uh you know, back around 1970, uh, everybody, you know, left and right sort of thought that the U.S. was after, you know, Medicare had passed, Medicaid had passed, and we thought we were on the verge of having some kind of national health insurance program. And the question was just, what's it going to look like? And, um, and you know, economists, uh, even sort of liberal economists who were, were very much in favor of having some kind of uh, national health insurance program, we're very opposed to the idea that 
we should just have something that was universal and didn't involve a lot of cost sharing. Um, and, and, you know, and the argument was that, well, this is not terribly efficient. You know, you want, if you're asking, some people can afford to pay for it and they should be paying for it. And if we, um, if we give services to people for free and we don't ask them to chip in something, then they're going to use too much health care. Um, and so, you know, so even liberal economists were sort of uh, challengers of this idea of having universal health care that doesn't involve a lot of cost sharing. Um, and, you know, and by the end of the 70s, that kind of came to be more of the of the dominant approach. And so certainly in the Clinton efforts at health care reform and also in in Obama's efforts, um, you know, there still very oriented around this idea of, uh, you know, how do we do this in a way um, that incentivizes people to do the right things? Uh, you know, so much of, of Obama's plan was around, um, you know, how do we create marketplaces that are going to promote competition? Right. It's, it's this whole idea of assuming that we are economic man, that we can indeed be incentivized, that we're rational actors. It, it goes against the foundations of behavioral economics, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of work, uh, you know, that, that's been done in economics has really been about, um, about, uh, you know, figuring out exactly how people do respond to incentives, right? So, um, you know, the Rand Corporation, again, for example, you know, by the 70s and 80s, they had moved on to healthcare. Um, and so there was a, a very long study about uh, health insurance, where they, they gave people, you um, different kinds of health insurance and then, you know, with, with involving different kinds of copays and then tracked how much uh, insurance they used. And so, so there was a lot of interest in, in trying to measure precisely, well, mm. how so do we ensure any that- other in, Do you think there's another post-war institution in America that's done more harm to this country than the Rand Corporation? Um, I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are many competitors for, yeah, uh, you, for you worse institutions. So finally, Elizabeth, we've talked about healthcare. We've talked about antitrust. Are there other areas in particular that um, we need to think, unlike an economist, if we're to fix the core problems in America? I mean, I think I think environmental policy is the biggest one. Yeah, and yeah, yeah because I think we are just at a point where um, we are not doing what we need to solve the climate crisis and. Um, and and clearly, you know, it's as, as desirable as having something like a, a solid cap and trade program might be. It, you know, it, it's not a political reality. And like the good news is that we actually see uh, other kinds of proposals on the table now. You know, people are, are promoting more ambitious things. You know, the, the 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 bad news is that none of that is actually coming to fruition yet. So you know, we're sort of in political deadlock. But that's the place it where requires I think us we need to, to think of ourselves as ancestors, as responsible ancestors, which takes us out again of economics, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, um, you know, and we need to think about, uh, you know, not think about the, the, the future in terms of um, going to necessarily be a time of endless growth and we can, we can pull right. it now because we'll be able to pay for it later. Um, but to really account for the, the risk that we might, uh, we might put ourselves into a position where, where we, can't continue to grow and um, we can't continue to support that right we had roman krasnarich on the show has a new book out how to be a good ancestor he is the husband of um kate raworth the mother of donut economics which i think makes mm, that mm-hmm. so 
All very interesting. Good job, Elizabeth. Great stuff. It's an important new book. Congratulations. Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. It's out now. It has a slightly forbidding title, but it reads very well. So congratulations on that. Uh, what else should people be reading, Elizabeth, uh, in uh, April 2022. What else are you reading these days? Oh, well, well, one book I, I uh, read recently that I thought was just terrific is um, a book by a, a sociologist named Charlie Eaton called uh, Bankers in the Ivory Tower, which is about uh, uh, the financialization of universities. And so it sort of right. looks at endowments from uh, one end and how, you know, people sometimes say that Harvard is a hedge fund with a university attached to, um, you know, at the other end, uh, for-profit institutions that are basically owned by private equity and how, how finance is really, um, you know, is really restructuring what higher education looks like in the U.S. Uh, who, who's the author? Uh, Charlie E-A-T-O-N. Do you know him? Uh, yeah, he's, he's terrific. Uh, well, maybe you could Definitely introduce worth him. Looking up. Good. Yeah, maybe you could introduce him. I'd like to have him on the show. And finally, uh, uh, Elizabeth Pop Berman, author of Thinking Like an Economist. Elizabeth, who, who, who runs uh, the world these days? Who's in charge? I have to say it's it's not the it's not the economists it's it's as always I think the people with money 